It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. This podcast is a Royfield Brown production. Find others on iTunes. All right. Yeah, I know. Ladies and gentlemen, please remain standing for the singing of our national anthem. Brexit means Brexit. My administration has accomplished more than almost any administration in the history of our country. Hello and welcome to Mid-Atlantic, the show where we look at the news and the views from one side of the Atlantic from the perspective of the other. I'm Royfield Brown, who is sat in a rather autumnal Birmingham in England. Today, we are joined by Chantel Hubert, who is a political columnist whose work appears in the Toronto Star and in many other places besides. She's been a commentator on Canadian politics since 1975, and she has also served as a parliamentary bureau chief as well. She knows everything that there is to know about Canadian politics, and whenever I seem to switch on my TV, whenever there's a Canadian election or a program about Canadian politics, she graces that panel and also does somewhat of an awesome job. Chantal Hubert, how are you today? I am fine, thank you. Uh, and I am not important. If I were, I could move around those TV panels. But because I am not, uh, I have uh, fixed schedules for when they want me to show up. And it's one of those, uh, if you don't show up, well, you know what happens to freelancers who don't show up. But dare I say, you're an award-winning journalist. So your importance has been documented. Canada has just gone through another election. Uh, we spoke earlier on this week about Trudeau's third term. You said to me, third terms, they never seem to end well. What's the history of Canada in its prime ministers and their third terms? Later in the evening, as the returns from the West Coast confirmed his victory, Prime Minister Trudeau finally made his way into the ballroom of the Chateau Laurier in Ottawa. There's still much to do in Canada. We have talked during the election about our policies and our programs. I want to make it perfectly clear that they will apply without any, without any sort of favoritism to every part of Canada. I am sorry that we have not more members from particularly the Prairie provinces. I just want to renew my pledge that I made at the time of the Western Economic Opportunities Conference that uh, we will do our best to make sure our policies apply with fairness to them if we can 
succeed, uh, we will show to the parts of Canada that we are not strongest, not, not as strong as we would like, that we intend to be a government for all Canadians. We've had, over the time that I've been covering politics, we've had a number of prime ministers, or, or over the time when I've been a voter, I should say, we've had prime ministers uh, secure third terms, sometimes with a majority, sometimes with a minority, as is the case of Mr. Trudeau. It doesn't really matter the shape of that third term, so I'll you know, take the clock back to his father, Pierre Trudeau, who uh, won a third term in uh, 1974, it was going to be a full term, so four to five years. Uh, it was a majority government. Uh, that term was so dismal, scandals, lack of purpose, uh, go down the list, uh, that at the end of it, uh, Mr. Trudeau was actually defeated. And it's another story, but managed to come back about a year and a half later. But that third term was a squandered term. Then fast forward to... Um, Jean Chrétien, and by now you're uh, in the early 2000s, Jean Chrétien wins three majorities back to back. And over the course of that third one, a civil war erupts within his party. His leadership is challenged by his finance minister. He ends up uh, firing or resigning that finance minister, Paul Martin, and uh, eventually sets a date for his retirement so that he is not... Um, subject to a confidence vote within his party, and so that the divisions maybe do not heal, but that uh, they wait. I would argue that Jean Chrétien's third term was actually saved by 9-11, that the, the purpose for it was uh, forced upon his government by the events of 9-11 and by having to make decisions on whether Canada would participate in the Iraq war, for instance. And up to a point... Uh, it, it it was an event that he could obviously not have foreseen, but that saved that third term. Then Stephen Harper came, three terms too. Uh, that third term that he won in uh, 2011 was a majority term, the first one. And here again, uh, scandals in the Senate, divisions within the party, a lot of talented people deciding not to run anymore. Uh, it ends in Mr. Harper being defeated and the Conservative Party being sent back to the opposition benches in 2015. And here we are, three elections later, 2015, 2019, and 2021, Conservatives still in opposition. But the Liberals, uh, on that usually ill-fated third term uh, for Justin Trudeau, so... If he looks back at history, including that of his own father, he's got to be thinking that no prime minister in recent Canadian history has managed to win four elections in a row. And at that point, your choice boils down to, do you want to really think you're going to beat the odds or and take the chance of going out on a defeat? Or do you start thinking about setting a time to ask the party to select a successor. And that has to be at some point uh, on Justin Trudeau's mind because uh, his party will expect him to go through the motions of at least considering his options and acting on one or the other and giving a clear signal at some point. When we try and think of political successors, it doesn't matter where 
we, we, we try and think of them, which country, which political party. It always seems to me like a fool's errand, but it's this, the stuff of political punditry. Um, if I was to give you a, a, a large bag of Canadian money and say, Chantal, your political <laughs> career as a pundit depends on you giving me an answer as to who the next uh, leader of the Liberal Party would be. Who do you say? I've been asked harder questions. So how much is in that bag? $10, only $10. Uh, It's impossible, as you know, to foresee the future in the sense that things, events happen. People can, can get sick. They can have family issues. And what looks like a straight line from where they are today to where they will end up in a year and a half, two years, three years looks pretty clear. But Take away that uncertainty, all things being equal as we speak today. I think that the odds that Christian Freeland, who is currently the finance minister and the deputy prime minister, will be Justin Trudeau's successor are very high. That's not only because Christian Freeland over the past six years of liberal government has handled some really difficult files. She was the points person on the renegotiation of the uh, NAFTA agreement with the Trump administration and Mexico uh, and managed to to come out of it with uh, not too many Canadian losses and actually a fairly united coalition within government behind the agreement that resulted from those negotiations. But beyond that, and of course, Ms. Freeland speaks French and English, which is a, a... you know, key qualification. If you're going to lead a national party in Canada, you must be able to make your case uh, in French and English, and she could do that. But beyond all those considerations, this is a party, the Liberal Party, that has been talking about gender parity uh, and women uh, having more profiles in politics, more women in politics. And Christian Freeland is the first female Canadian finance minister. But even as the liberals have been talking about the gender parity, and you know, Justin Trudeau, when he makes a, a, a crafts his cabinet, uh, has been making it a rule that there be an equal number of women and men at the table. The only major Canadian party that has never had a female leader is the federal liberal party. So if you put all of those things together and you think a couple of years from now, Justin Trudeau is on the way out. Christian Freeland is still or has been uh, uh, the finance minister, probably in difficult and challenging circumstances. We don't know what the economy will be like over the next two years, but it's probably going to be a rocky ride. I find it very hard to imagine, should she run, that the the liberal members will look and say, we have a really qualified woman to lead our party, uh, but we're going to go for it a man again because we've always done that in the past. And that's why I would tend to think that that bag of money, all things being equal, is probably already making its way into my bank account here. (laughs) Um, You did qualify your answer by talking about national parties. Do you class the block obviously the block is regional but they have a national presence they have a they have a national influence they have an influence which goes way beyond quebec in canadian politics how do the how does that 
how does the block do in terms of inclusion with with, with women and with other Quebecois who aren't necessarily white? The Bloc did have, by the way, uh, one leader who was female. They've all, throughout their history, if you look at the Bloc's representation in the House of Commons, and it's a short history, it only goes back to the mid-90s, but they have had, over those years, fairly regularly some very strong uh, women, uh, as has their sister party, the Parti Québécois, that ran uh, a number of um, independent-minded uh, Quebec governments. One of the reasons, and I, I'm, I'm, I know I'm taking a side road here, but one of the reasons why Quebec has a much, uh, much more comprehensive public childcare system by comparison to any other jurisdiction in Canada is because there were some really strong women in positions of influence within a Parti Québécois cabinet. And that culture has also been part and parcel of the Bloc Québécois culture. The other issue that you have asked about, which has been whether non-white Quebecers would vote uh, for the Bloc, is a complicated question in the sense that uh, the Bloc Québécois is a sovereigntist party. It's, it's, in theory, devoted to the secession of Quebec from the rest of Canada. Traditionally, the sovereignty option has not been terribly popular within the more diverse communities uh, that live, for instance, in Montreal, who, by and large, if their parents came to Canada or, or if they have come to Canada, came to Canada first. They didn't come to Quebec. And... It has been one of the great failures of the sovereignty movement that it has not managed to do very effective outreach within other communities, including some that whose, whose main language is French. So do, do people who do not identify primarily or did not in the past as Quebec first and Canada second stay away from the Bloc Québécois on that basis? Or do they stay away because they feel that the Bloc Québécois positions are defensive towards diversity? I think it's more of a mix, but traditionally, and that's been the case long before the Bloc Québécois existed, non-Francophone Quebecers, those uh, and those from various communities have tended to be fairly loyal liberal constituencies. Gotcha. Let's continue by looking at the leaders of the main parties and let's have your take on that. The Conservatives have gone down to yet another defeat. Erin O'Toole, I did ask Laura this when we, when we ran the runes over the election results, but I have to ask you the same question. Was he right in terms of his pivot to the centre. Did he, in effect, lose votes on, let's say, to the far right, to the People's Party? Was that strategy strategy correct? And then where now for the Conservative Party in Trudeau's third term? For me, there's no either or in, in the choices that Mr. O'Toole has had to make. Getting back those far right votes would mean shrinking the party to uh, the margins instead of making it an even stronger contender for power. There, There is no road that goes through uh, winning back the far right and gets you on the government side of the House of Commons. Not today, not tomorrow, and not for the foreseeable future. 
And don't forget that when you say far right, you tend to say options that um, are not uh, overly keen on immigration and diversity. And in this country, you cannot win government unless you win in the suburbs of Canada's major cities. And you can't win those uh, suburbs that tend to be very diverse unless you are seen as someone that has uh, that prizes diversity. So the choice to bring the Conservative Party closer to the center is not even a choice. They, they, if you look at the election results, the Conservatives are absent in whole or in part of all of Canada's major urban centers outside of the Prairie provinces. And you cannot form a government, even a minority government, if you can't score in Vancouver and Halifax and Montreal and Toronto. You need some of those places. Otherwise, you're going to be looking at power from the outside. If there is one thing that the past three elections and those before that have demonstrated, it is that Canadian voters are more likely, uh, a majority of them, to self-identify to progressive policies than to conservative policies. And the the opportunity for conservatives to win power is one for that progressive vote to split or divide properly between the liberals and the NDP. But it is also to make the conservative user-friendly enough that that vote feels comfortable in splitting. Because when when centrist and left-of-center voters feel threatened by the Conservative Party, feel that it is too right-wing, they coalesce behind the party most likely to beat the Conservatives. You're not going to accomplish that. You will not win a, a, a plurality of seats in Canada uh, by promoting the right-wing, true blue stance that Aaron O'Toole promoted to become leader of his party. And I think his biggest problem, uh, which can be solved over time with consistency, is that he courted his own party as being something and then turned around and presented something else to voters. Uh, And in politics... That that gray zone where people aren't sure who you are, they are, they're only sure that you will say anything you need to say to win, is not a good place to build confidence and to win votes. So over the next uh, year and a half, if his party allows him, Mr. O'Toole is going to have to uh, pick a lane. And he is going to have to bring his party into that lane because the lane that his party likes best is... A side road. According to Elections Canada, the metropolitan areas of Toronto, Montreal, Vancouver, the country's three biggest cities, which account for 116 of Canada's 338 ridings, are heavily progressive. And, and out of those 116 ridings, the Liberals won 86. This points to what you were saying, that the Conservatives do not do well in metropolitan Canada, but also to an urban and rural divide, which we've seen all throughout the Western world. Should Canada be worried that its politics is being um, defined in such a manner? 
have you found a place that has managed to uh, resolve it? Because, me, me, me personally, uh, <laughs> no. Me, me personally, no. I haven't either. I mean, up to a point, Canada is no longer a rural country. It's not going to be going back to being a rural country. I am not totally convinced that the values of people who live in rural areas in this country are that divorced from the values of people who live in the larger cities. I think the main differences uh, do not lie in values. They lie in priorities. Of course, you know, urban transit issues are issues for larger cities. They're major issues. The affordability uh, crisis in housing is mostly a, a crisis that... Uh, that pertains to people who live in larger urban areas. The divide, I think, may have a, a bit more to do. If you look at demographics, the demographics of the vote, uh, and you will see that also in Quebec, but on, in, on another front, which is sovereignty versus federalism, the conservatives tend to do really well with older voters. Who or what areas of Canada are demographically older than others, those tend to be not suburban, but they tend to be rural areas. So it's, it's not a surprise that the conservatives who do well with older voters do better in rural areas than urban areas. But the, the, I don't think that on issues like climate change, for instance, there is a divide between rural and urban. I think it's a priority for uh, an increasingly large number of voters. But what I do know is that younger voters put climate change higher in their list of boxes that they will tick before they vote for you. And unless the conservatives find a way to convince voters that they are not the less serious option on climate change. They will keep those votes, but they will see even their vote rural, their rural vote will shrink with redistribution because uh, we redistribute seats according to population growth every so many years. There will be less of those rural seats uh, and more of those suburban seats. So, so to, to think in rural versus urban terms, is an, it's an interesting divide, but I don't think it's a defining one. Doesn't this then, if we're to take everything that you're saying on board, you know, Canada is increasingly becoming an urbanized nation. Doesn't this then just relegate the Conservatives to a permanent opposition? When, you, when one looks at the Canadian political landscape anyway, all of the political parties other than the Conservatives, if we discount the People's Party, are at best centre left. So they always seem to get, or at least in the last two elections, they've had they've had the largest vote share in terms of they have a plurality, but they have a majority. But the, uh, the political spectrum of Canada, the Overton window kind of skews left. So if we look at that and with how you describe Canada in this increasingly urbanised country, the Conservatives are always going to be the near permanent opposition, aren't they? I don't think so. I, I I think there is a path for the conservatives to uh, come back to the, the cities and, and be a success. I don't think that it's that where they has they have failed pertains to a left right divide. I think it pertains to uh, 
how they missed a turn on the environment and on climate change that they they and in the process ended up having a vote that is inefficient in the sense that it is grounded in one region of the country, uh, a region to which the Conservative Party has catered by playing down climate change and the realities that come with it uh, to the point where it is now impossible to, to continue that. And, and a lot of conservative thinkers over the years did warn the conservative movement that it needed to be seen as green. Green is not a left color. It's, 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 it's a necessity these days. And a conservative party that got serious about climate change would probably be able to do a lot better in the urban areas of the country. There, the other problem is at some point, the conservative party is going to have to look at itself and realize that some of the battles that divides conservatives are battles that have been resolved for most Canadians. They're the only party that still debates abortion rights is the conservative party. It's, and they're the only party that is unable to find within itself to acknowledge that climate change is a serious issue that must be addressed is the conservative party. So, the, so there, there is, yes, a lot of catching up to do, but I covered a, a progressive conservative government, that of Brian Mulroney in the mid eighties to uh, mid nineties. And that government was far ahead uh, of the liberals on issues like uh, the environment, for instance, did the free trade uh, agreement and pioneered that concept when the liberals were still holding back uh, on the, those kinds of issues, fought apartheid on the international scene. So yes, it is possible to have a winning conservative coalition in this country. It is just that the one that Stephen Harper left behind is not that. But if you look at my province, Quebec, which has a reputation for being, quote unquote, very progressive, one of the first provinces uh, where uh, abortion uh, rights were, despite back then the federal law that uh, uh, restricted abortion, one of the first places where abortion rights became accessible uh, without restriction, a place where uh, medically assisted death uh, is a matter of consensus in the National Assembly, same-sex marriage, go down the list. Uh, where we have public childcare, public med, uh, pharma care, we've had all those for a number of years, etc. The current Quebec government is, by most definition, a conservative government. It is the most conservative party on the Quebec landscape at this point, except for a French party. And yet it is very successful because the brand of conservatism uh, that is uh, articulates is one that uh, is different from the brand of conservatism that the Federal Conservative Party, or its membership at least, is seen as the definition of conservatism. So the, the left-right thing, I think it's, it's overrated. I think many Canadians would be quite open to considering a serious center, right-of-center party as an option for federal government in Canada, if that party only accepted that its mission in life is not to bring us back to the 1950s. <laughs> Isn't there a kind of 
quintessential ideological conflict in a conservative, let's say a right of centre party, I'm not going to say conservative deliberately, a right of centre party who espouses cutting taxes and then with environmentalism, which is about putting on new taxes to dampen down growth and to have a, a transfer of money from those industries which uh, pollute and warm the atmosphere to new, cleaner energies. So that's a problem for a right. Are you saying? Party. Are you saying then that you would have the conservative movement, including those the Tories in Great Britain and the UK, walk away from um, the most efficient tools to fight climate change, which is the issue of the era? No, and the name which is, of which philosophy. Is Chantel, Chantel which is why I very clearly said right of center and not conservative, because you can make a very strong argument for saying that if you are a, a party which is broadly conservative, you want to um, conserve the environment, but generally right of center parties, and let's say the, the, the right fringe of the UK Conservative Party is very Thatcherite. Uh, you look at the Republican Party, half it is, you know, and, and yes, but we, them, but taxes are an anathema. Yes, or okay, taxes, but, but, we are, but we are not the United States. In this country, the number, the proportion of Canadians who would have voted for Donald Trump, including uh, people who identify with the, the conservative movement, uh, that's about 10% of the entire Canadian electorate. Show us a Democrat and we'll always, you know, if Canada were a state of, of the US, we would be a, a Democrat stronghold, including Alberta. So those French parties that you talk about exist, but they are not part of the mix. Okay, let, let, let's, <laughs> let's continue with our sweep of Canadian politics and the leaders who are gonna, um, be in parliament or at least have parties that representation that are going to be in parliament during Trudeau's third term, the Greens, Anna May Paul, what the heck is going on there? We talked about green issues and very obviously environmental issues are important to all Canadians. And as, and as you rightly say, it's not necessarily a right or a left divide in this. Where next for the Greens? They, they're going to, they're going to have quite an uphill struggle. First, they are obviously very divided over the uh, their assessment of what happened to Anami Paul's tenure. Where and it is possible at some point that those who believe that the Green Party has a role to play uh, in the political conversation in Canada will have to take a step back from those who did what to who in that saga to agree on uh, a couple of facts. One. Anami Pauls was personally, as a party leader, wildly unsuccessful, ended up running fourth in the riding uh, where she attempted to win a seat in the House of Commons and brought the proportion of the vote for the Green Party nationally to not an all-time low, but to a, a low that it had not seen and set the party back um, more than a decade, probably two decades. So the, the, the Green Party is going to have to find a leader that does not want to refight the last battles over the leadership, but a leader that is also inspirational, that makes voters say, I know the Green Party is not going to be part of government, but I think I would like that person to 
have a voice in the House of Commons and some of the people that he or she brings. That is, I think, how many Canadians saw Elizabeth May, the previous Green Party leader, uh, and, and on the basis upon which um, voters believed that even if she was not going to be in the power loop, she was an interesting voice to have. So that's their first problem. Second problem, the environment used to be kind of the purview of uh, a, a particular and minority segment of the, of the electorate. Over the past decade and a half, there has been a sea change uh, in how voters view the environmental issue. And it has become more and more of a ballot box issue for Canadians. If you agree that the number of Canadians who will consider the capacity of the, a party to articulate effective climate change policies, that that number of those voters has increased exponentially. It also makes sense that those voters will be looking for a governing party. They're not going to look to elect maybe a handful of green MPs who will sit in the back of the House of Commons without official party recognition. They're going to look at the Conservatives and the Liberals at this point, they're going to say which of them is the most serious on climate change or is or are they both serious? And so I think the Green Party needs the Conservatives to become a serious option on climate change because as of that point, it won't be as necessary as it has been for many voters to say, I'm going to vote for the Liberals. I'm not even going to give the Green Party a look because I want to make sure that at least the next government takes climate change seriously. And the perception has been for the past decade that the Conservative Party does not. So if you had a choice of two approaches, equally serious, equally effective parties that are equally committed, then possibly the Green Party would have an easier time getting a hearing saying, well, I'm going to push whoever of those two is in government to, you know, keep up uh, its game and do better. But at this point, uh, your choice is you can either have the liberals who many independent experts concluded had a serious, if not perfect climate change plan, or the conservatives about whom most experts said that their plan would have been great 15 years ago, but it's really a recipe for going backwards at this juncture, and and the Green Party somewhere in there. So if you're going to take climate change seriously, you're going to vote by default for the one of two parties that seems to take it more seriously. Right. It's an opportune time for me to say to everybody who's in the audience and even those that are on stage, we have another 24 minutes of uh, Chantel. So if you have a question, feel free to put your hand up. I'm going to ask one more question. Then I'm going to throw uh, the mic over to political pundit Laura Babcock. And then also we'll ask Mac Matan, who's also a friend of the podcast, who's also up on stage, to, to also to ask a question about Canadian politics. The last major party, which we haven't talked about, is the NDP. If there was any party who at least promised to make strides in the last election, 
other than the Conservatives, it was actually the NDP. The NDP ended up with just, what, one one seat extra. Hasn't Jagmeet Singh's tenure been all promise and no delivery in terms of actually solidifying and actually growing the base of the NDP? Well, if, if you look at the numbers, he's actually been shrinking it. He inherited uh, a party that had the 40-some MPs in the House of Commons representation in the, every region of the country, including a fairly strong representation in Quebec, but also in Atlantic Canada, managed to um, lose more than half of those seats in his first campaign and failed to win them back over the course of his second campaign. So it, it's not even been con- failed to consolidate the base. He has actually allowed the base to become smaller. I think part of the problem has to do with the substance. Everybody agrees that Chuck Singh is a convivial leader who is a good campaigner, someone that you would be happy to go have a beer with if you're so inclined. But the NDP has always been known uh, as a party that was also kind of wonkish on policy. And under its current leader, there has been a gap between the, the congeniality of the leader and the depth of, of the policy that has been put forward. And I think that's been a problem for the NDP. I also uh, think that somewhere, somehow, the Liberal Party under Justin Trudeau is, has been, you know, taking quite a number of ideas that used to be associated with the NDP. The $10 a day childcare plan has been NDP policy for a number of years, uh, and now the Liberals own the childcare issue federally. So between being squeezed uh, further by Justin Trudeau's Liberals and uh, a leader that I think does not bring the policy gravitas that previous leaders uh, of the NDP used to bring, you've got the results. They kind of speak for themselves. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. 
Thank you for that. That's me ju- just about done, folks, are asking questions today. So now it's going to be Laura Babcock. But before I um, ask Laura uh, to weigh in to the conversation, why don't you hit the little greenhouse icon, join our club. Uh, so whenever we go live with these shows, you can join in with the conversation. Laura Babcock, you've waited patiently whilst I droned on for the best part of 40 minutes. The mic is yours. No patience necessary, Royfield. I could listen to Chantel all day. Chantel, you, you mentioned that there's really no path to being in opposition or even really in government and parliament in this country if the Conservatives can't get those suburbs around the major cities and that the far-right populist movement that we saw in this last election, 820,000 votes going to Bernier and the PPC, um, that that's not a route forward for the Conservatives. To a crowd of maskless supporters, Maxime Bernier spun his party's results as a great success. My friends, this is not just a political party. It is a movement. But the leader, who repeatedly ignored public health orders, failed to win his seat. None of his party's candidates did. Still, the People's Party of Canada more than doubled its votes from the 2019 election, winning 5% of the national total, beating the Green Party. It really looks like it's the protest vote, the people who are frustrated with um, lockdowns, people who are frustrated with vaccine mandates. In several writings, the PPC vote may have tipped the balance. In this riding in southern Ontario, the Liberal candidate beat the Conservative by just 1% of the vote, while the PPC candidate took 7% of the vote. So even if just some of their supporters here backed the Conservatives instead, it likely would have made a difference in this riding. And that's not lost on Conservative voters in Kitchener South, Hespler. Do you think that they took away the Conservatives' chances of winning? Possible. And that would make me upset because... I really wanted the Conservatives in. <laughs> Absolutely, yes. The the PPC just took away the took took away the opportunity right now for you know for next to nothing. They're not they're not they don't have no one in power, and they haven't won anything. So it's kind of it's kind of disappointing. But it's not that simple, says this analyst. A sizable block of these voters are are very alienated with the system. Um, they're not necessarily ideologically conservative. They're just anti-system, very frustrated. Um, and they wouldn't necessarily show up to the polls. This time, they were galvanized by anti-mask, anti-vaccine rhetoric. The question now, will the party recede in a post-pandemic world or will it wield lasting influence in Canadian politics? I'm curious to know what you think about the actual growth of that party and that movement. There are some that say as soon as the fear of the pandemic goes, so do they. I'm of the opinion, rather, that they caught on and gave voice to a powerful set of fears. And we're seeing in the United States that it, they, it is trucking along down there, their populist right-wing movement, in spite of Trump losing the presidency. So do you think that Bernier and the movement that he has started is going to diminish post-pandemic? Or do you see it as being a real game changer in Canadian politics going forward and only uh, will grow over the next decade. Let me first uh, do the big picture thing on uh, this comparison, as tempting as it may be with uh, the success of, of this, these populist movements in the U.S. and Canada. We live in a country that is far more consensual than our neighbors to the south. 
There is not in this country a mainstream party, federally or provincially, that wants to do away with public health care and Medicare. There is not in this country a mainstream party, provincially or federally, that wants to restrict abortion rights or go back on same-sex marriage or play in all of those social conservative movies. There is not in this country a mainstream party, federally or provincially, that is anti-immigration. And you could go down the list of divides that you see in the United States, and you would be hard-pressed to find a, a social conservative movement as if as influential outside of the immediate room of a conservative convention in Canada as you find in the United States. The same applies to uh, the issue of gun control, where we live somewhere somehow in a bit of a different planet than the U.S., as Mr. O'Toole discovered to his own detriment. So that's as a way of saying that while you can get 800,000 votes, if you're Maxime Bernier, you do not have a path to becoming that major force. Throw into the mix our parliamentary system and the first past the post uh, voting system that uh, makes it really hard to uh, get influence in the House of Commons. And you have where Maxime Bernier is here. I believe that it was a gift to uh, Maxime Bernier the, the, the pandemic uh, and the anti-pandemic-related anti uh, health measures, the anti-vax movement. But that puts uh, him at odds with more than 80% of the country's voters from coast to coast to coast, which doesn't give you a really big pool to fish in. In that pool, there are people whose first goal in life is to get rid of the liberals' and replace them with another government. And the more competitive the Conservative Party is in the run for power, the less far-right parties like Maxime Bernier uh, will be able to achieve. All of that being said, it is also very, very hard in Canada to keep a party relevant and alive, absent, some representation in the House of Commons. And at this point, what did ha what happened to Maxime Bernier in both the uh, writing he used to own when he was a conservative, lost it in this new incarnation, and lost it very badly this time? Clear message, Maxime Bernier will not be able to go back to the House of Commons from both between now and never. Maxime Bernier, a Quebec leader, does very poorly and is not considered as uh, someone of interest in his own province. So if you want to add all of that up and think that in 10 years there will be a strong contingent of People's Party MPs in the House of Commons, I'll take that wager. Well, that's very reassuring. Thank you. With the rise in right-wing extremism in Canada increasing, you know, it's it's something I think a lot of us are very concerned about having seen how he took advantage in this last election. But were you concerned when those same people, their parents maybe, or, or their grandparents, uh, were uh, running movements that uh, were called the bilingual today, French tomorrow, when they did everything that they could to curtail French language rights outside Quebec, when they opened gas stations so that they could defy the 
introduction of the metric system. They were not born yesterday. It's not as <laughs> if Canada is, uh, was such a great, open, innocent country. And I say this from the perspective of someone who speaks French and who was raised in French in Toronto in the late 60s. And let me tell you that it was not a harbor of diversity and openness. Well, I'm glad that you said that, because I think sometimes people think that Canadians feel as though we are impervious to right-wing populism <laughs> and to the rise of hate. Uh, but it, it has been here before. There are new tools, of course, new organizing capacities, social media. Uh, we've seen what happened with Farage in the UK, and we've seen what's happening with Trump. So uh, I, I take your analysis as, as comfort. Chantal, I just want to ask you one other question before we open up the room. When it comes to the Green Party, and where they are as leaders. I was on a panel in Toronto the other morning where a failed Green candidate was talking about how the party really has very few barriers to becoming part of the party, and and he seemed to enjoy that system. But isn't, in fact, the way the Green Party structures itself uh, going to bar them from being able to really organize around a leader and to come back and, and gain that decade of ground that you mentioned that they've lost? Do they need to change their very ethos in order to be competitive? I can't answer that question. Uh, I mean, the Green Party, as interesting as it may be, is um, something that most of us cover from afar. They they don't have much of a life on Parliament Hill. And I think most uh, political journalists in this country's experience with the Green Party was Elizabeth May was the Green Party for until very recently. So uh, the internal workings of the Green Party... I will totally admit are a mystery to me. But as for securing membership in a party, it's no e harder to become a member of the Conservative or the Liberal Party than to become a member of the Green Party. Uh, the Liberal Party actually allows you to vote for its leader without becoming a member, just someone who cares. So I don't think that, and I cannot see how a political party can actually restrict entrance to its uh, uh, membership beyond saying, you know, if you share our goals, uh, send us a few bucks and you're going to become a member. And then we can send you fundraising letters every second week. Well, then possibly it was their own mythology that he was uh, buying into. Well, they, um, they, I, they, I would... they have this so-called collegial approach to, um, to how the party works, right? The leader... And if you're old enough, you may remember that Preston Manning, when he was first elected as the leader of the Reform Party to the House of Commons, then the leader of the Third Party, um, insisted on sitting not in the front row. Yeah, well, Stephen Harper kind of changed that management style. It tends to, <laughs> um, to evolve with political success. Absolutely. Thank you. I, I want to open up the floor if there are any other questions in the room or back over to you, Royfield. Thank you, Chantal. Thank you for that, Laura. Mac, a native of Ottawa who's currently in Mogadishu on holiday with her family. Mogadishu is the capital of Somalia. Do you have a, a question or you have a point you, you'd like to raise uh, with Chantal about Canadian politics? Hi, Royfield. Hi, Chantal. Um, I'm actually a really big fan. I love watching you on The National in your, in your uh, panels, I have a question about the first past the post uh, system. I remember in the 2015 election, Trudeau and the Liberals promised to do away with it. But after, mm -hmm. you know, suddenly when they won the majority government, it wasn't an issue anymore. <laughs> and they did an investigation and said, you know, actually, we uh, 
maybe not an investigation, but some committee meetings and decided, you know, it, it wasn't it wasn't something that they were going to pursue. Do you so I live in Germany, actually, and we have something that kind of resembles the first past the post system. But they also do uh, Germans all vote for two candidates. They vote mm-hmm. they vote for the sink, the, the purse, like the constituency representative and they actually vote for the for the party that they would like to see so there is more of a proportional representation in germany and i'm just wondering in your opinion is there a future in canada to get rid of the first past the post system or is that just never going to happen if my friend andrew Cohen were here he would tell you how it should and would uh, happen but i am not terribly optimistic it's interesting that you're asking this question today because The last jurisdiction in Canada where proportional representation or at least a change in the electoral system was still on the books is the province of Quebec, where Premier Francois Legault in his last campaign promised to introduce a more proportional system with the support of every other party in the National Assembly back then in time for this election. And today, uh, surprise, surprise, the Quebec government has announced that it's not going to have enough time to pass legislation to change the voting system. And let me make a prediction that if they win the next election a year from now, we may never hear about electoral reform in this province again. So if you go down the list of provinces that have opened um, up the uh, electoral reform file, only to eventually abandon it, and that would include BC, that I think gave that particular can three kicks, Uh, but Ontario, New Brunswick, uh, PEI, now Quebec, none of them has succeeded in moving away from the the first-past-the-post system. And I think that the opening that the Liberals uh, created back in 2015 uh, was... It's strictly related to their the shock that they endured by falling to third place for the first time. And the notion uh, that because we have two fairly strong progressive parties, the Liberals and the NDP, the vote in the progressive electorate would ensure that the Conservatives more often than not would become Canada's natural governing party. But I think they, you're right. The, the day after uh, Justin Trudeau won a majority, they got over that fear. And I do not see, absent one of the two main parties, conservative or liberals, supporting a change to a more proportional system. I think the file, at least for, and I'm old enough so you can keep your hopes up, but for the rest of my journalistic life, I do not expect to cover move to a different voting system in this country. Thank you, Chantal. I just had just one more question, if that's okay, Warfield, otherwise we can move on. Okay, so this is the second election Jagmeet Singh has lost. Now, I really like him, and you had talked about how he's a convivial guy that you want to hang out with. And I think he actually really pushed the needle a lot, and the NDP pushed the needle a lot on um, legislation just by virtue of it being a minority government. But how long do you think he's going to be able to stick around as leader of the NDP if they're never, ever winning? And it, it, it might actually look like Aaron O'Toole will have to step down. And the Conservatives have way more seats than the NDP. So I just would be, I'm just wondering what your thoughts are on that. Well, the NDP tends to give its leaders more uh, chances than 
the other two parties, uh, the liberals and the, the conservatives are not usually kind to leaders who do not win uh, on their first election. The NDP is of, of a different persuasion. And how many elections did the Jack Layton run in, and that has kind of reinforced this notion of sticking with a leader. Jack Layton was what on his Ford campaign when he had this big breakthrough in 2011. So it is not necessarily a bad thing to give a leader more than one chance, but I uh, am with you in the sense that there has to come a time when the new Democrats are going to have to ask themselves if they are happy and comfortable with Mr. Singh being a permanent third party in the House of Commons, or if they want to reconnect with larger ambitions. Uh, and at this point, I know that they are, by and large, very comfortable with the kind of campaign that Jackmeet Singh has run and with the, the, his leadership. That means that the members of the party at this point are content with the party's fourth place in the Commons. Thank you for those two excellent questions, Mac. Let's quickly go to Laurie. Thank you, Royfield, and happy to uh, speak with you, Chantal. My question is pandemic fatigue for all of us is a very real thing. And I have heard it said that Trudeau, like all of us, had pandemic fatigue, and that might be why he called the election to take the focus off the, you know, pandemic, but also to sort of maybe lose his job purposely without stepping down. And I'm just wondering your thoughts on that. And given the, you know, last Thursday, he made yes, another brash kind of error. What your thought is on that? I don't think calling the, an election was a suicide mission. I think that Justin Trudeau called the election for two reasons. One, because every poll suggested that he could win a majority and get rid of the inconvenience of having to win support across the aisle for whatever legislation he had in mind. It would also have provided him with a four-year horizon, which is always nicer than uh, the, the two to 18 months to 24 months uh, that has been the average life of minority governments. I think the other reason why he called an election was because if he had not had an election on September 20th, his next window for having an election would have been in 2023. The second the signs came down on the 20th, municipal campaign signs came up in Alberta and Quebec which takes care of the rest of the fall. And then next spring, Ontario goes to the polls. And the people who work for federal parties, the NDP, the Liberals, the Conservatives, they're the same people who are going to be voting, uh, who are going to be working and hitting the pavement for Doug Ford and Andrea Orovat in Ontario. So you, you cannot have both concurrently or consecutively easily. And then next fall is the Quebec election. So... The circumstances looked favorable to the liberals. There is no guarantee that the climate in this country will be particularly liberal-friendly in 2023. So I think that's why Mr. Trudeau did call an election. I can't answer your real question, which is, does he really is he really thinking about his exit more than about doing something with that third term? I think the next few months will tell. I'm not willing to uh, 
judge the, the, the ill decision to go on holidays on the wrong day last week as, as a, a definitive sign one way or the other. Thank you very much. Thank you for that question, Laurie. Chantel, thank you for joining us on Mid-Atlantic. We hope we can have you on again uh, soon to to talk about uh, Canadian politics and talk about it with, with your with the with the weight of your kind of knowledge of being working in and around the Canadian political system since since the 1970s. Last question for you. You're a big fan of Ted Lasso. Do you think do you think Sam is going to end up with the boss of the team. And do you think that would be a fitting end for this season? Oh, my God. I've got my storylines all mixed up because I've been watching the Squid Game. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm thinking, who's going to die next? <laughs> I'm not gonna, can you tell that I've covered politics long enough to know how to get out of a question that I'm not planning to answer? <laughs> <laughs> well, listen, again, Chantal Hubert, thank you for coming on to Mid-Atlantic. Thank you for being with us for the last hour and sharing your your uh, thoughts and your insights into Canadian politics. And uh, enjoy Ted Lasso tomorrow, because I, I know <laughs> that you're, you're a week behind the rest of us, which couldn't wait uh, to watch the last episode <laughs> last week. Thank you uh, to Laura Babcock, political pundit over there in Hamilton. Thank you for, for gracing us with your with your presence also. Thank you also to Mac, who is, uh, yes, she's a, she's a native of, of Berlin, which is actually born in Ottawa, and she's over there in, in, in Ottawa. And uh, thank you for Laurie for also joining us. Don't forget, folks, this is Mid-Atlantic. Left of centre politics is right-thinking politics. You can join us by coming onto Clubhouse, downloading the app, and then you can be in the audience whenever we go live with these shows, which means that you then have the ability to raise your hand and ask a question. Look after yourselves. Be good to your loved ones. Take care. we we'll see you all again in approximately seven days' time for some more politics on either side of the Atlantic. Bye-bye. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app. You can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. Confidence starts with loving who you are. And when your skin feels nourished and glows on the outside, you naturally radiate confidence from the inside. Give your skin a glow up with Osea's clinically proven Mega Moisture Duo. This ultra-hydrating body care features two of Osea's bestsellers, Andaria Algae Body Oil and Andaria Collagen Body Lotion. These seaweed-powered heroes use skincare-level ingredients normally reserved for your face for results you can see and confidence you can feel. 
Osea has been making clean, clinically proven seaweed-infused face and body care products for over 28 years. This luxurious skincare is vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Glow from the inside out. Get 10% off your first order with code GLOW at OseaMalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A Malibu.com, code GLOW.